Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association of North America's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association of North America or the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, everyone. Today, we will have a collaboration between the Arthroscopy Journal and the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons with a combined podcast covering the topic of shoulder instability, in particular, the Instability Severity Index Score as it relates to the predictability of recurrence rates after arthroscopic repair. We will review two separate publications and then compare and contrast the results and discuss how those results influence our clinical practices. I'm Dr. Clay Nolly from TSAOG Orthopedics, and I'm joined by my practice partner here in San Antonio and fellow Arthroscopy Journal podcast host, Dr. Rob Hartzler. Welcome, Rob. Clay, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. And we are also joined by the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast host, Dr. Rachel Frank from the University of Colorado. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. And Dr. Peter Chalmers from the University of Utah. Welcome, Peter. Thanks so much for agreeing to do this with us. I think this is going to be great. So we'll start with the arthroscopy article. The arthroscopy article is entitled, Is the Instability Severity Index Score a Valid Tool for Predicting Failure After Primary Arthroscopic Stabilization for Anterior Glenohumeral Humeral Instability? The lead author was Dr. Mattia Lopini, and it was published in the February 2019 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal. So, Rob, if you could start off by giving us a brief synopsis of the article and then maybe a couple of your main takeaways from the article. Great. So this, again, article from the Arthroscopy Journal from 2019, a multi-center retrospective study, case control, the senior author, Dr. Castagna. And this study looked at 670 patients, all of who had minimum five-year follow-up and all of whom were treated with arthroscopic isolated bank heart repair for recurrent anterior shoulder instability. And they reviewed the ISI score as described by Boileau and retrospectively determined if this was a significant factor in the recurrence rate. They had a very um, good, in in my opinion, rate of follow-up. Only 21% were lost to follow-up, which as we all know in instability studies at this uh, long a follow-up period, minimum five years is is very good. Their overall recurrence rate was 26%, which in general is a fairly um, in keeping with the, with the rest of the literature for isolated arthroscopic bank heart repair at this length of follow-up. And in analyzing the ISI score patients who had a score of three or less points um, compared with four to six and greater than six points, Uh, had an increasing frequency of recurrent instability as the score went up. So uh, compared with the low group, three or less, the middle group had uh, a risk 2.4 times, and the group that had greater than six points had a risk 9.4 times uh, compared with the low-risk group for recurrent instability. So this this paper uh, does support findings uh, from Boileau and from the French Arthroscopy Study Group that the ISI score uh, is correlated with a recurrent risk of anterior shoulder instability for patients who have a greater than a score of uh, three. That's terrific. Uh, so now we'll switch over to the journal shoulder and elbow uh, surgery article, uh, which was published also in 2019. Uh, the, the title of this article from JSES was entitled Evaluation of the Instability Severity Index Score in Predicting the Failure Following Arthroscopic Bank Heart Surgery in an Active Military Population. The lead author was Dr. Andrew Chan, and the senior author was Dr. Brian Waterman. 
So Peter, how about, uh, could you give us a brief synopsis maybe of this article and a couple of your take home points? And then Rachel, if you could give us a couple of your thoughts and take home points as well. Yeah, so I think this is, um, I, I, first I think these authors should be congratulated. This is a, a group out of a military, it's kind of a military consortium study um, and um, includes authors from a couple different centers, but it's actually a single center military study of 131 patients with a minimum of two year follow-up. And um, there's a couple of things to say about this score. So the first is there's a, there's a bunch of different papers showing the score works. There's Boileau's obviously original s study showing that a cutoff of six and 131 patients was appropriate, but there's been a couple of subsequent studies. Lapini, this, the author, you know, the other study we're talking about today sort of cut off of three. Thomaso, which is a, they, they published a soft cut study showing that ISIS of two or less was actually the best cutoff. And then there's a paper, another study by Fadness and AJSM, but there's three of three separate studies apart from this one that show that it may not work. You know, there's a study published by IBAN with 163 patients in KSSTA, and they actually found zero difference in the ISI score between those with or without recurrence. There's also the Giacomo study in arthroscopy that showed that glenodrac was actually outperformed the ISI score. And then there's also a study by Boulain in the British Journal of and joint surgery uh, with 110 patients. So upon that backdrop of some controversy, I think this study maybe adds to our understanding a little bit. The first thing you should say is this, so the study that we're talking about here is a military study, and basically all of the patients get two points on the SI score just for being in the military. And that's because they were all considered competitive athletes. Their recurrence rate as a result of it being military study is substantially higher than the Lapini study. So they had 26% recurrence. 41% patients had intermittent pain, which I think is much higher than probably community instability. It's much closer to instability, uh, more of a military population. So the most interesting thing they found here is there was no difference in the ISA score between those patients that failed, who had 3.4 on average, and those patients who succeeded, who had 3.5 on average. But they also found that nothing was predictive of failure in their group. Age, gone and bone loss, hill sack size, sports hyperlaxity, none of these things were predictive. So some of the strengths of this study are that this is a large patient population. It's a relatively captured homogenous patient population. But there's some sleight of hand in this paper that I think we should address. Um, and that's that there is no listed rate of follow-up. So there's no real description here of how many patients they actually perform this procedure on in the center during the time period for us to know how many patients were lost to follow-up. And there's also no description of how many patients underwent open stabilization or concomitant remplissage during this time period. So we don't know what, what, what degree of selection bias there is within this cohort. That being said, again, I think the author should be congratulated for this analysis that again calls into question the value of the ISI and predictive recurrence. That's a ter terrific synopsis. Thank you, Peter. Uh, Rachel, would you wanna give us a couple of your thoughts? And then I have a lead in question for you that Peter alluded to, one of which being the follow-up and the rate of follow-up in, in this, uh, the military study in the JSES paper here, um, the minimum two-year follow-up, as Peter alluded to, whereas in the arthroscopy paper, the average recurrence was at three years. And as Rob had mentioned, uh, sometimes, you know, in instability studies, longer-term follow-up, obviously, you'll see the recurrence rates go up. So uh, give us maybe your kind of main thoughts and then a lead-in question. Do you think that that kind of follow-up rate is a major factor? And how did that influence this paper's results versus the arthroscopy paper uh, results and instability recurrence rates? Yeah, I think everyone's brought up great points, and um, and both summaries really highlighted a lot of the the interesting findings of each of these studies 
conclusions. You know, it's great to compare these two studies, particularly given, especially as Peter was mentioning, there's several studies in literature that advocate both for and against using the ISI score. And those who are proponents for using the score really vary in their cutoffs, um, you know, whether using a score as low as two or up to as high as six for determining if someone should get an arthroscopic repair versus a bony reconstruction. You know, with these two studies, we have two different patient populations, the all-military or athletic patient population in the JSCS article versus a more general patient population, although still with a high percentage of contact sport or, rec or excuse me, competitive sport athletes in the arthroscopy paper. Um, as mentioned, while um, the techniques seem modern um, with, you know, modern suture anchor techniques, uh, um, the surgical techniques did vary, you know, in the JSES study, they were either performed in the beach chair or lateral decubitus position, whereas in the arthroscopy paper, all in the lateral decubitus position. So just some other variables that may come into play when we look at these outcomes. Um, I do think, and, and one of the points um, that I noted when reviewing both of these studies is, is the follow-up. So I'll kind of get into that question you were asking. I do think that follow-up is relevant. Um, as Christian Gerber pointed out in his uh, paper a year or so ago, you know, five-year follow-up really does matter when it comes to shoulder instability and probably all orthopedic procedures. And I say that humbly because a lot of the papers I've been lucky enough to be a part of have that minimum two-year follow-up, but don't necessarily reach that five-year follow-up. And certainly, I think all of us as researchers should strive to reach that five-year follow-up because I think that's when we start to really see some differences. And so, as Peter was mentioning, we may, um, we may see different outcomes in the JSES study if we had either more follow-up duration with regard to the length or if we knew the complete denominator of the cohort. So I think that does have some potential serious implications into the, um, the final calculations with regard to recurrence rates and then their association with the instability severity index score. You know, one question I had for, for everyone here is, I know at least in my practice and where I trained um, and all of the, the mentors that I worked under, while the score is great to talk about from a research perspective and analyzing papers, most of us, if not all of us, use advanced imaging as part of our diagnostic um, toolbox for evaluating these patients and determining what procedure they should get. And certainly in the instability severity index score, it's all based on um, the, the different categories, but the imaging component is, is radiographs as opposed to CT or MRI. So do you guys use this score in your pa uh, practice in terms of stratifying patients for getting an arthroscopic repair versus a bony procedure? Or do you rely more on other factors that are not identified in this score? Yeah, it's a great question, Rachel. I think for, in my practice, I don't think that I, that I calculate the ISI score and then rely on it for the decision for arthroscopy versus um, open surgery, particularly ladder J. Um, because I think a, a little bit, there's a little bit of a false dichotomy in terms of if you, if you have a higher ISI score, um, saying that, well, the only option that we have besides isolated arthroscopic bank heart repair is ladder because we actually have remplissage, you know, that we can add to an arthroscopic procedure for these patients with recurrent instability. So I'd have to go, I haven't calculated, you know, what I do based on ISI. I'd have to go, go back and do that. But, but I actually might follow it because I do a lot. I, I lean heavily on remplissage, I think to, you know, to save the day in these patients that are at high risk for recurrence. Thoughts on that, everybody else? Peter, how do you do you use ISI regularly in your practice, and and how do you or do you is you rely more on advanced imaging? Yeah, I mean, I um I I 
personally use advanced imaging. Um, we, we get a lot of uh, CT scans or, you know, if, 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 if you can get a good MRI, sometimes that can be helpful to tell you grossly where you are, but it's not useful in some research we've published for fine delineation. I, I definitely rely on glenoid bone loss and I, I often cal calculate the glenoid tract um, as DiGiacomo mentions in his article. I, I, I will tell you about the glenoid tract. One of the issues I've had with it, and some, this is coming out in some research that we're doing right now, is your measurement of the glenoid tract is not very reliable. And um, one of the bigger issues with glenoid tract is that your measurement in 2D is probably completely different from what we measure in 3D as it was originally described. And measuring it in 3D is, is not trivial and it's not, not probably easily accomplishable with any current software that, I, that at least that I've encountered commercially. Um, so I think that's probably gonna be something that's gonna change the way we look about this in the future and that we're gonna be able to maybe more accurately calculate who is on or off track, and that may, that may change our use of, of remplissage. I definitely use remplissage as well, but um, I think that glenoid bone loss can be more accurately and reliably calculated, and that's, for me, been a fine delineator um, of what to do. That being said, I definitely use the factors that are considered within this um, uh, instability severity index score to, to bias you one way or another. So if a patient has 19% bone loss, but they're 35 and not competitive or contact athlete, you know, then you're not, I think latter day does not enter the conversation as much as if someone has 14% bone loss, but they are 15 years old and trying to get back to football the next year. Um, so again, I'm, I think that probably everyone does that subconsciously. I think the score is a really nice way to, to codify it. And I think that Boiler should be congratulated for helping us to do that more formally. Those are terrific points. I think my practice mirrors everything that you guys just said. Uh, we just actually had a recent podcast with Justin Arner and, and Matt Provincher and Peter and Rachel. Both of you have done a lot of great work with this particular arena. And he kind of alluded to the exact same thing that, um, you know, a lot of us use the advanced imaging and, and do some of those type of calculations of evaluation. But as the advanced imaging has gotten better, we're able to really assess uh, the glenoid much better. Um, and assess the overall uh, track much better. And, and a lot of us probably have gone more to that versus specifically kind of uh, calculating the ISI, even though we, as you alluded to, Peter, probably all kind of indirectly do that to some degree. So another big question I have for each of you, and you can each take it individually. Um, one of the big things that we all talk about in the instability literature is, you know, defining instability and in particular subluxations versus dislocations and, and how do we really define recurrence rate and define true recurrence rate when it comes to subluxations and dislocations. So how do each of you um, evaluate each of these individual papers and then kind of compare and contrast them in lieu of that, that thought and that thought of, how we best evaluate and best define recurrence rate. Um, Rob, we can start with you. Great question. I th think that in almost all of these articles, it's failure de defined by recurrent instability is pretty liberal where even subluxations are counted as a failure. And so, you know, that's been suggested as a reason why it's, you know, why the failure rates are are high. And I, I mean, I don't know what everybody else thinks about it, but when I survey the literature of isolated arthroscopic bank heart repair, if you have the long-term follow-up studies, particularly minimum seven or minimum 10-year follow-up, I mean, it's quite high defined in the in that way. It's around 20%. And I, so I sympathize, I think, with the French surgeons in particular who say that we have, you know, we should be doing better than 20%, but but I don't know, maybe maybe not. That's probably an, a, 
a great question for discussion is that is that failure rate for a very for a safe operation too high yeah i think you know the the I, I totally agree, and it's a great question, and I think it warrants a lot of discussion, not just with regard to these two articles, but how we all define our outcomes. You know, it's funny, when you talk to some patients after shoulder instability, um, a lot of them, especially a year or two years after, feel great. But then if you ask them, do you ever feel like your shoulder's loose or slipping, even when those athletes feel great, they've gotten back to sport, whether it's contact sport or overhead sport or whatever it might be, some of them may report, yeah, I've, I've had a sense here and there, um, never, you know, never anything that they'd ever bring up unless you specifically ask them. And that sometimes is not captured in patient reported outcome surveys or scores. And we might be missing more subtle subluxations or sense of apprehension than we actually see reported or even we collect ourselves depending on the type of survey that we give our patients. You know, in the, in the military study, um, they, they really defined in their methods how they defined failure, either by gross uh, redislocation or subluxation. And in the, um, in the Italian study, it was a little bit more vague. They just said they defined it by either sub, uh, subluxation or dislocation or any feeling of instability, but still very subjective on the part of the patient, I guess, to report that. Um, and yeah, I think the question remains, is a 20% or so failure rate for an operation that's relatively safe and comfortable for the vast majority of us acceptable. Um, and and I, I think a lot of the papers that we see maybe report failure rates under 10% even for arthroscopic stabilization. But if you really talk to the patients, it's probably higher, but maybe less relevant because they're still playing and satisfied and happy with their outcome. I think this is such an interesting topic and the military is to be congratulated for their careful use of the WOSI score. The WOSI score is really challenging to use for research because you can't really collect it over the phone. Um, we've been in our own research asking three questions. Have you had a recurrent dislocation? Have you had a current subluxate, recurrent subluxation or feeling the shoulder has slipped? And do you feel apprehensive about the shoulder in addition to asking, of course, about reoperations and our standard PROs? Um, one of the things you mentioned, Rob, that I think is super important for us to understand and such a challenge with clinical research is that oftentimes by the time we get long-term follow-up, our techniques have changed. You know, that happens in these two studies. Like if you look at the, 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 the time periods for these two studies, they're nearly non-overlapping. So Lapini had 2002 to 2009, whereas Chan had 2007, 2014. Certainly things changed in our technique between 2002 and 2014. Hard to know if those make a difference, but things did change. And it, those are reflected in these papers like for instance, there's a minimum of three anchors in the Chan paper, and Lapini has a minimum of two anchors. They're double loaded, so there's four sutures, but still only two anchors. Certainly, when I saw this paper presented, Lapini presented at Sesic, immediately someone got up to the microphone and said, this work is not valid because you didn't use enough anchors. I don't know if that matters or not, but it makes it hard to interpret our literature. Um, and it's going to be a continuing problem from forward. Yeah, I think those are great points. I think, you know, the other thing with the Lopini paper that is inherent just in the in the study design. And, and But uh, you wonder a little bit about somewhat about recall bias. And then again, uh, you know, the recallability of subluxation versus dislocation versus apprehension is going to be somewhat difficult to quantify um, after the fact in, in that regard. And so, um, so when it comes to these type of evaluations, um, uh, when you guys see, say, a patient with a, just a 20-year-old 
kind of standard bank art tear, um, but without significant bone loss, what's, what's the conversation that you have with that patient? And, and then if they have a recurrent instability episode or recurrent apprehension, um, how do you kind of progress down that pathway? Uh, Peter, you want to start off with that one? So it's a 20 year old inter labral tear, no glenoid bone loss. Is the person an athlete? The person is a, we'll say contact athlete. They've had a recurrent subluxation or recurrent apprehensive type of episode. So I, I still think that the, uh, the an arthroscopic labor repair is, an, is a is a reasonable first option for that patient. Certainly, as Rob said earlier, I would I would um, be aggressive with the remplissage in that case. I would definitely be aggressive with extending around the back. I think you could also seriously consider an open an open bank heart in that situation for um, no bone loss, but with a contact athlete. Um, I get nervous about that because you have to take down the subscap. Um, that's that's what I would do. I don't know if it's the right answer. What what about you guys? What would you do in that situation? Well, for me, I, you know, I would echo. Um, I would echo having that discussion with the patient. I, you know, I, I like these patients, especially if they've not had prior surgery um, and they have minimal to no bone loss. I think when you get above kind of twelve or you know, with JT Tokish's thirteen point five percent subcritical bone loss number, when you start getting into you know, a single digit percents and how that might change your decision making. I think that's a more difficult conversation, but still fun to have with the patients. Um, but I think, you know, I tell them these are the outcomes with a soft tissue procedure um, that can be done all arthroscopically. These are the outcomes with the bony procedure. These are the complication rates and these are the risks. In my hands, for the patients that, for the patient that you just described, I think an arthroscopic stabilization, um, aggressively placing a seven o'clock anchor really getting and restoring that bumper up and using, you know, in this case, I think with the labral tear you described, you know, probably from three to six o'clock, I'm probably using a minimum of four suture anchors um, and being aggressive with remplissage, uh, uh, but not always, um, again, depending on Hillsack's involvement and whatnot. Um, I think it'd be aggressive, at least in my practice, to go with a, a bony reconstructive procedure as a first time option. But um, I'll tell you, when I was spending time training before starting, you know, after my first fellowship um, or after my, my regular fellowship, um, when I was in Europe and in particular in France and, and Italy, um, Ladder J was a primary procedure of choice for the vast majority of surgeons that I followed. Um, and that was irrespective of bone loss. That's just the, the nature of bias in, in training in certain regions of the country and world versus others. Um, so I wouldn't fault anyone for choosing a bony reconstructive procedure, but in my practice for that type of patient that you described, I would uh, proceed with an arthroscopic stabilization. I think same for me that I would lean heavily towards arth towards arthroscopy for that patient, but just, you know, that the risk factors for recurrence would push me towards doing remplissage, assuming they have a Hillsax lesion, um, even if they were to have an off-track Hillsax lesion. And, um, you know, that kind of decision, you know, Clay mentioned before um, Preventure's podcast that we just had, and he made the point that there you can get the most sophisticated algorithm and, and kind of decision-making system in place that you can, but there's always going to be a little bit of art of medicine and maybe a bit of intraoperative decision-making um, with these patients or really any you know, any way that we make medical decisions because there's borderline cases and there's other extenuating factors and things like that. So I think for me, in, given this clinical scenario, it's we know it's a high risk of, for recurrence. So I would treat go for arthroscopy, but um, 
lean, but lean towards doing rumblesage if that was available for that patient to try to lower the recurrence risk. What about you, Clay? What'd you do? I think I'm in agreement with all of you. I think I, I definitely in the contact athlete, it's a conversation to be had about the recurrence risk, as you alluded to, I think. Um, I've, I think I've definitely become um, much more aggressive in the last few years, or I shouldn't say maybe aggressive, but um, much more uh, lenient towards doing a, a rim passage in an index procedure, especially if there's a decent size hill sacs deformity, as Rob mentioned. And so I, I agree with all of you in that it, I would I would um, do an arthroscopic stabilization, but I certainly would have a conversation uh, with that patient about the recurrence rates and and depending on the hill sacs and the overall uh, deformity, I would certainly have a low index for rim passage. Do you think that each of you um, have increased your um, frequency of either Rimplosage and or Ladder J within the last few years, or do you think that's been stable for each of you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the question the question that's begged by these articles is, should isolated arthroscopic bank heart repair be a lot more rare than we probably do on a whole in, in the U.S., or maybe uh, in non-French, <laughs> the non-French world, because a lot of these patients have ISI scores that are greater than two or greater than three. So that's that seems to be what a lot of the literature says, is that we shouldn't do an isolated arthroscopic bank heart repair, that we should either go go for ladder J or that we should add reblissage. I don't know. That's That's my, I mean, I think that's the big conundrum for me. I think it's hard to say because I, you know, we we probably need some additional studies looking at the this score in the setting of arthroscopic stabilization with a bank art repair plus remplissage. Um, I, I think we need some longer term studies with that. And and like anything else, the techniques for remplissage have changed dramatically over the last several years as um, as industry and implants um, help improve our ability to do that type of surgery. So that's going to be a difficult study because techniques for that portion of the arthroscopic procedure have evolved over the last several years. Um, I, I still think there's a role for a, a lonely bank art repair for the right patient um, without adding a remplissage and without proceeding directly to a bony procedure. Um, but I think we have to give you know caution to when, when we're deciding just to do that and make sure we're not doing that out of just ease or getting the surgery done quicker and making sure we know our risk factors for our patients, you know, particularly for the hyperlax patient without bone loss, I think that um, I think that remplissage can play a huge role, but you do risk potentially over tightening a patient that's used to being pretty loose if they're hyperlax. Um, but yeah, I still think there's a role for an isolated bank art repair. I just think we have to know our risk factors, and the higher those factors, as noted by the ISI score, um, the the more we have to consider doing or augmenting our procedures. Right. So should it be less than two or three? I mean, that's my whole question is like, do we really need more information to know? Because there's many, many studies that have the long-term follow-up that show a 20% failure, you know, failure rate for isolated arthroscopic bank heart repair. And, you know, the French literature supports rare use of it. So, I mean, that's like, that's my whole question is, do we need, what, what should we say about all of that literature that the, that the you know this, the surgeries weren't well done. That it was old technology. That are we going to be having this discussion in another five to ten years and find out that it was still that high? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. What do you guys think? I am. Um, look, uh, to answer your initial question, Clay, I definitely think I'm doing more ladder jays 
than I was doing when I first started. I think the main thing that's changed for me that I think is probably for a lot, lot of people um, in response to the careful work the military has done that we're redefining critical bone loss. And I, I definitely in patients in the 13 and to 20% range, I'm, I, those patients I did not do ladder J on when I first started and I've, got, I've gotten a lot more aggressive with the ladder J in that group, especially when, when you have an ISI that's higher, when you have a contact collision, hyperlax, that kind of patient. Um, one of the things that I think is super interesting here is we all talk about the rental massage as though it's something you get for free, which I, I, I think that's basically what everyone thinks is that, oh, you add a rental massage, it's another 15 minutes in the OR, you know, it costs you maybe two more, one or two more anchors. Um, and I think that's probably not going to be true in the long term. And I don't know in what way it's not going to be true, you, but it's just generally true medicine that you never get anything for free. Um, so there's going to be a cost to remplissage, and I don't know if it will be cuff tears later on. I don't know if it will be, you know, like, I feel like the range of motion thing is not played out. Definitely those patients have a harder recovery, but um, I, I think that we need to watch that closely in the long term because I, I, generally in medicine, you never get anything for free. Yeah, that's a great point, Peter. I mean, it's it's more time, it's more anchors, everything you said, it's harder rehab. I rehab them slower with remplissage, but I think that, I mean, it, to me, it looks like the clinical outcomes are better. I don't, what's your sense about that or for the whole group, I guess? I, I would agree with you that there's the literature would suggest that that's been my personal experience that the recurrence rate is lower. I, de I definitely think that they have a harder rehab. I don't, I don't, probably I, I sometimes have themselves slower, but yeah. I mean, what do you guys think about I, It's sort of an old idea that the Hill Sachs lesion, you know, might be the quote primary factor of why patients have symptoms. I mean, it, it, yeah. And I just, wonder if some of these patients who don't really have frank recurrent instability, but as Rachel was saying before, you know, sort of feel like there's something not quite right and they guard their shoulder and, you know, say, if I don't use it in a certain way, it, it wants to come out. It, I mean, is that their Hill Sachs lesion just being symptomatic? It's so tough or to know. It I mean, I, I think it's, or is it both? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. Or, or is it some component of, of hyperlaxity? You know, we, we're not, we have the Baton score, we have the general gestalt of are they a flexible, loosey-goosey person or are they not? Um, but I don't think we fully understand the ramifications of generalized ligament hyperlaxity just by using a Baton score. Um, it's kind of the best we have, but I, you know, that can all come into play too. And, and so I, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, it's really hard to know. Um, you know, remplissage has become really popular in the last five years or so because literature has expanded. Um, I think, you know, it's been more popularized in uh, conferences and techniques, the technique journals, et cetera. Um, and uh, it's, again, it's, it's relatively easy to do, relatively quick to do. But I, I agree um, with what Peter was saying. There's definitely no free lunch. It just hasn't been around long enough for us to know what the potential down, uh, you know, downstream ramifications are. Have you have you all had a remplissage complication yourself or one referred? Because I've had a couple referred to me. What did, what were the complications? Tell us. So one cuff tear, as you said, and that's I mean, if you if you have a a musculotendinous infraspinatus tear and you're thirty, that's a bad you know that's a bad problem. And I had another patient who had their basically their deltoid remplissaged into their rotator cuff. I haven't seen either of those. That's nasty. I was just going to say the point you make is a good one, though, you know, for the long term follow up. I mean, each of these things we do that we're talking about here outside of 
a basic kind of primary bank card stabilization is non-anatomic, right? Or we're, we're creating these different kind of non-anatomic structures in, in an effort to, you know, create a, a stable shoulder. Um, and so I think each of these things definitely has to be critically evaluated long-term uh, as you alluded to and as you pointed to. So one of the things that I think is super interesting about that point is, I mean, it's true that the REM pulsage is non-anatomic. It puts the, the rotator cuff attachment in a place where it is not normally. People say the same about the ladder, Jay. What I think is interesting is that the baseline anatomy of the scapula in patients with instability is not the same as the baseline anatomy of patients with that. We've shown that in a, in a kind of careful um, statistical shape modeling study we did that showed that the glenoid is taller or narrower. And there's another military study that showed that previously. In addition, the coracoid is farther back, as is the scapular spine. The whole thing is rotated around to provide less support. The other two things that are interesting is there's a there's a study that um, Maroder did that showed that the glenoid is less curved in patients with instability. And then there's also old data um, showing that the subscapularis is not normal in patients with instability. The subscapularis is, is more lax. So the interesting about the latter is that it addresses all of those things. It moves the coracoid down, it builds the anterior inferior glenoid, and it tensions the subscapularis. So we refer to it as a non-anatomic operation, but in a lot of ways it may be making what was at baseline abnormal anatomy closer to normal anatomy. You know, Peter, you just blew like my mind with that, that one. Um, I think we have to just close I, now. I was going to say, it's, it's comments like these that made me in residency refer to um, Dr. Peter Chalmers as the professor who is the smartest human alive. <laughs> you guys got to stop. I just, I just think there's a lot we don't understand about this that, that <laughs> we're going to understand more of. The thing that I think is nice about the latter is you can you can point to long-term follow-up studies. Um, you know, there's long-term follow-up from, um, you know, careful long-term follow-up that was that was that's been done in Sweden and elsewhere and in France to show that the study this, this procedure does work in the long term. Obviously, Gerber's study as well. That's a terrific discussion, everyone, on shoulder instability. That concludes this special combined edition of the Arthroscopy Journal and American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please join each of us next time.